HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I am excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You'll hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. Yeah. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the pepper coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking about this idea you have. That way you're engaging them. They're engaging with each other and you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You will also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you. Good evening, and welcome to the first episode of the fall 2020 season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined on the line by the one and only Marion Nessel. Marion is, of course, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University in the department she chaired from 1980. 
88 through 2003, and from which she retired in September 2017. She's the author of six prize-winning books, including Food Politics, What to Eat, and Soda Politics. Her new book is Let's Ask Marian, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. And I am so pleased that it has brought her to the, back to the show. Welcome back to Eating Matters, Marian. Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's start. Let's just start at the at the top. Um, what made you decide to write this book, and why now? Well, the uh, decision was really because I was invited to do something like this by University of California Press, where I've published some other books, and they thought it would just be a terrific idea if I would do something short. Um, I tend to write books that are 500 pages and have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references, and they're pretty tough going. Um, I mean, you have to be serious, Mm -hmm. serious read. And they thought it would be really a good idea if I did something small, short, and accessible. And I just couldn't figure out how to do it um, for a long time because uh, I find it hard to write short essays um, but I find it easy to answer questions. Mm-hmm. And I at one at some point, I thought Carrie Truman, uh, Carrie Truman, about 10 years ago, was writing a blog called Eating Liberally. And every now and then she would ask me a question and her questions were so much fun to deal with. They were little mini essays. She's very knowledgeable about food system issues. And they were little mini essays and they were so much fun to deal with and I would just whip off answers. And then she'd post them on her blog under the heading, Let's Ask Marion. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the title of this came from. And when I thought of that, I asked her if she would do it again. Uh, she hasn't written the blog for a long time, and so this was like starting over. But um, we worked out what the questions would be or what areas they'd be in, and she wrote her little mini essays, and I wrote my slightly longer ones, and we were off and running. I imagine that was that I might have bristled if I were you, the idea of condensing a, I don't know, 40-plus year career into <laughs> sound bites um, in the form of this book, but... <laughs> You're like, I've written a lot. And and 13 previous books, um, some of them edited, but all of them quite long and covering an enormous range of material. Um, And I was just, I was paralyzed. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. So this method worked and it's done and um, it's adorable. I mean, it's this (laughs) tiny little book. It's four inches by six. It's Mm -hmm. Tiny. It's the shortest thing I've ever done. Well, it's it's really. I mean, it is jam packed with information, and it is um, very approachable, which I'm sure is the point. It was funny. I was sitting, um, I was reading it, and I I'm one of those people who I'm going to read every you know I read everything before I interview somebody, and I was I read with a highlighter, and um, I was sitting on the patio doing so the other day, and my dad came out, and he was like, "What are you doing to that book?" <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> highlighting. Sentence, but I'm like, I'm gonna help it. It's also important. <laughs> but anyways, it's it's wonderful. So, and I, of course, you know, I, this is a show about food politics, and I think that, I mean, to me, you, we know this is like a, a food politics is a is a phrase today because of you. Um, but yet, I I still have um, sometimes struggle 
even defining it, right? I think that it's just so vast and it can be a little complicated um, for people who don't know a lot about the industry. So how, how do you really define like food politics? How is food, how is food political, very broadly speaking? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a question I'm still getting asked, although not nearly as much as I did when food politics first came out almost 20 years ago. Um, but the COVID-19 pandemic has made everybody understand what food politics is. Right. Um, the idea that meatpacking workers who are paid very poorly or largely immigrant people of color don't have sick leave, may or may not have uh, health care benefits, are considered essential and that the president invoked the Defense Production Act to force them to go to work mm. while um Meat is piling up all over the place and people are online for food handouts because there's not enough money to go around and millions of people are out of work. This is food politics. It's really easy to see. Yeah. Do you think that the food industry is more or less political than other industries? Oh, I think it's exactly the same. All industries are the same. They have one goal and only one goal, and that is to make profits. That's their job. Uh, so no matter what they're selling, uh, if, if they're a publicly traded company, they not only have to make a profit every quarter, but they have to grow their profits every quarter. For food, and, for food companies, that's really hard because mm -hmm. we have way too much food available in this country. So the food industry is extremely competitive. Um, but there's no difference, really, between uh, the food industry and other industries, except we have to have what they produce. We right. need food to live. We can't live without it. And so we're greatly dependent on food companies for producing food. And we wish they would produce food that was healthy for us and for the planet. That would be nice. <laughs> That would be crazy. <laughs> I mean, yes, that would be lovely. It seems very straightforward, but um, like so much in you know to do with food, it's it's um, for for some reason it's it's not always that easy. One of the things, a, a good example of this, I think, is that you write about is dietary advice, and um, you know it seems really straightforward. You write about how it's summed up by Michael Pollan: eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, that makes sense. But yet we as certainly as Americans, like really want to seem to overcomplicate this um, and, and struggle certainly to kind of be able to, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So why do you think that this is? Well, I think there are lots of reasons for it, but food industry imperative to sell food is certainly part of it. I mean, mm -hmm. I keep saying that food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses with stockholders to please. And when the f food in the United States became really competitive and the number of calories in the food supply reached the point where it was double what the what the country really needed, the food mm -hmm. industry had to sell food. And it did that by marketing it with health claims, eat this and you'll be thin forever, mm -hmm. um, or eat this and it'll have this magic ingredient in it that will take care of all your problems. Uh, it put food everywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. the example I love to give is libraries. Really? Libraries food have food? Libraries? Yes, wow. there is. Oh, sure. Wow. Yeah. Libraries have cafes in them. All they all do now. Oh, Clothing yeah. stores, 
It used yeah. to be that you couldn't go into a clothing store if you were carrying a cup of coffee. Now they give you coffee in the clothing yeah. store, or they did when we were still going to clothing stores. Yeah. Um, and they started making food in larger portions. And the you know if you want a simple explanation for obesity, it's larger portions. If I had one concept to get across, it would right. be that larger portions more calories. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you, you wrote that in your book. You're like, if it's one concept and it seems so, it just seems so obvious. And you, one of the things I really find refreshing is that you are a, an omnivore, a self-described omnivore, and you don't categorically say, at least what I've read, like absolutely do not eat X, Y, Z. Do you think that this makes you an anomaly in the dietetic community? Oh, I think most trained nutritionists and dietitians would say exactly the same thing. Um, the you know, there's no one diet that promotes health. There are you know, the, the business about Michael Pollan's seven words. It it's, sounds like a joke, but really, it covers everything. Eat food, mm. not too much monthly plants. Um, you can you can devise an enormous number of absolutely delicious diets that meet those principles mm-hmm. and do perfectly well. And people who eat largely, not necessarily exclusively, plant-based diets are healthier than people who don't. Right. Um, and that's been thrown over and over and over again. And you know, by food, he means relatively unprocessed foods mm-hmm. and avoiding what we're now calling ultra-processed foods, which are foods that are industrially produced, can't be made in home kitchens, have all these weird ingredients in them, um, and last forever on the shelf. Uh, but the problem is that the food industry profits are in the ultra-processed foods. Right. Um, and therefore, they're going to, that's where they're going to put the most effort. Right. And, and, and like the, I mean, the advice always seems to be like, you know, changing a little bit. You, and I think you do a really good job of explaining A, why it's so hard to kind of create hard and fast rules, um, like diet, you know, dietary rules when you're dealing with like a specific ingredient. Like, you know, you talk about eggs, for instance. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, eggs are a really good example because, I mean, to me, the great irony of the arguments about eggs is that when the first uh, evidence started coming out that cholesterol was a risk factor for coronary heart disease and eggs are the largest source of dietary cholesterol, mm-hmm. um, and the message was out to uh, restrict the number of eggs um, because you know, to keep your dietary cholesterol level low, mm-hmm. um, the recommendation at the time was one egg a day was fine. If you look at the recommendation now, it's still one egg a day is fine. It's never changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the conversation about it has changed enormously because the journalists wrote about it as if you should never eat another egg and if you ate an egg, you would die on the spot. That's <laughs> not what happens with food. Food is much more complicated, and whenever you're looking at one food and not taking the entire diet into consideration, whatever you come up with is going to be misleading uh, because it's everything else you're eating that matters and how much you're eating that matters. 
and how yeah. physically active you are and whether you're drinking and smoking and all of these other factors, uh, they, they're all intertwined and it's impossible to separate them. Yeah, because nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, okay, out of, out of well, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, what about what about supplements? You, I think this is a good illustration in the book about. Um, I mean, you write about the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. I would love it if you can, um, you know, expand on that a little bit. And and to me, it seems this is one of the major pieces of legislation that kind of is one of the reasons why our food system is so broken today. Uh, like a land, like a land, if you were to say like this, this happened and, you know, we continue to see a lot of really bad effects because of it. Would you agree with that? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think supplements are fascinating because there's another irony involved here. More than half the American adult population takes supplements of one kind or another with remarkably little evidence that supplements make healthy people healthier. They don't. Yeah. Uh, most amazing. of the evidence, you know, most of them in mean, the evidence, and these are now hundreds, thousands of studies show that people who show that people who take supplements are healthier than people who don't take supplements, but they're healthier anyway. Mm-hmm. And the supplements don't have anything to do with it. Um, because who takes supplements? People who take supplements are people who care about their health. They're generally educated. They have enough money to buy these things. And they have belief and value systems that, um, are that, that favor doing things for your own health. So people take them and they feel better. That I don't think there's any question about. People who take supplements feel better. Like the placebo um, effect? Almost. Well, I, you know, I think it's a placebo effect. There's no evidence that the supplement has anything to do with making healthy people healthier. They're fine for people who are in very bad shape, mm-hmm. but those aren't people who are taking supplements. So Is you that- have this really strange situation in which lots and lots of people take them because they're worried about their diets, but they don't really need them. Fortunately, they're mostly not harmful. Right. Um, so I don't get I don't get too upset about them. But the one thing that I do get upset about it is how unregulated they are. And whenever the FDA takes a look to see whether what's on the label is what's in the package, they find many, many, many discrepancies. And, and that has to do with the act you mentioned, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, which was an act that was... Um, promoted by Orrin Hatch, who was senator from Utah, which has lots of supplement companies in it. Mm. And they didn't like being regulated. They didn't want to have to produce products that had in them what it said on the label. In fact, they didn't want to label them at all. They wanted to be able to make ridiculous health claims for them. And they wanted to be left alone and not reg- and not regulated and Orrin Hatch got the congress to pass this act which essentially deregulated dietary supplements took the burden of proof um, for proving them safe and effective a- away from the manufacturer and gave it to the FDA so if the FDA was upset about some supplement and sub supplement label the FDA had to take the company to court and in general, the FDA lost court cases. It lost hmm. a lot of them. Why? In, in the early, 
the courts ruled in favor of the companies because of the First Amendment. They can say whatever they like on the basis of the First Amendment. I mean, I, it just is mind-boggling, I think. Yeah. The founding fathers hardly passed the First Amendment to allow food marketers um, and supplement makers to say whatever they wanted about their products. That surely cannot have been the intention of the First Amendment. But that's how the courts have been interpreting it. So the FDA's hands are tied. Yeah. And... And you have the wild west of the marketplace out there. You have no way of knowing that what's on the label and what the company is advertising is actually true or not. Um, And you say that it leads to like, I mean, the FDA is in a weird place where they have to have almost kind of like conflicting claims on or, you know, that that a label will have like conflicting flame, uh, conflicting claims on no, it like agreed the labels have to be egregious yeah or people have to die from taking a supplement before the fda can do anything about it fortunately yeah. there aren't very many of those i'll right. say it again most supplements are harmless and yeah. the supplement industry argues um they're not arguing that their supplements are doing anything they're arguing that supplements are safer than pharmaceutical drugs and that more people die in the united states from uh, improper use of pharmaceutical drugs than are affected by supplements supplements are harmless right. or generally harmless and of course they're right about that but i would prefer some scientific evidence that they are what they say they are and do what they say they're supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> I have to agree on that, on that part. Um, I'm going to keep on the, the theme of kind of like how we, how we got to where we are today. Um, and I, I have this theory that like 99% of what's wrong today is a direct result of something the Reagan administration did. <laughs> <laughs> or something that happened around around that time and you you do write about how like the 80s is kind of when we started to see a shift in the food environment can you tell us a little bit about what these what these like three big shifts are um, and what sure. they resulted in Sure. I mean, President Reagan came in with a deregulatory agenda, just like Trump did. Um, And he wasn't quite as good at it as Trump is, but uh, he did did quite a lot. Yeah. Um, And so the deregulatory agenda affected food as well as affected a lot of other things as well. And we were already overproducing food by the time he came in. Um, And the that was that was the result of policies that uh, came in the 1970s where uh, the Department of Agriculture Secretary Earl Butts, famous for saying you should grow food hedgerow to hedgerow, um, the all of the incentives and subsidies for agricultural production promoted overproduction. Uh, the idea was to, to produce as much food as possible. That food could be sent abroad. That food would be sold at home. It would keep the price of American food very low, keep the price of meat very low, um, supply and demand. And, the, um, and so by the time the 1980s started, the number of calories in the food supply 
I mean, it took a while for those policies to get into effect. But in starting in the early 1980s, the number of calories in the food supply increased. That's food that's produced less exports plus imports. Yeah. Um, and we now have available for every man, woman, and little tiny baby in the United States, 4,000 calories available per person per day which is roughly twice what the country needs on average. And even if a lot of that is wasted, which it is, uh, it's still an enormous surplus of food. So that makes food companies very competitive um, because they have to sell food in an environment in which there's twice as much food available as the population needs. But then a worse thing happened, and that was that starting in the early 1980s, uh, we had the shareholder value movement on Wall Street, which was a stockholder movement to try to switch from valuing corporations on the basis of long, slow returns on investment, switching to immediate higher returns on investment. And that was accepted in the early 1980s. And that meant that corporations not only had to make a profit, but they had to show growth in profits every 90 days to Wall Street or very yeah. bad things happened. Their stock prices went down. So this was terrible for food companies because they were already trying to sell food in an overabundant marketplace. And then the third deregulatory thing that happened was essentially a deregulation of restrictions on marketing to children. There was an attempt made in 1979, before Reagan came in, um, to stop marketing to children on television. And the uproar and the pushback on that was so great that by 1981, Congress had passed a law forbidding the Federal Trade Commission from doing anything to regulate marketing to children. Um, so marketing to children is an enormous source of profits for the manufacturers of certain ultra-processed foods, it's really important for marketers to be able to target marketing to children. Not that children have their own money, but they have, yeah. what's, called, they have what's called pester power. Yeah. Um, and that is asking their parents to buy products, which is a very effective technique. Um, and I went, oh, I don't, when, when Michelle Obama was still doing the Let's Move campaign, I went to a meeting in Washington, D.C., on marketing to children and heard food marketers at that meeting say, we would love to stop marketing to children. We don't think it's ethical, but there's really nothing we can do. We have stockholders to please. Wow. So, so that's the bottom line. <laughs> that's the, that's bottom the line. yeah. Um, all right. Well, they have stockholders to please. I think this is a good segue into um, one of the questions that you address in the book, um, which is, is the free market the path to a, a global food supply? And, and certainly I think this is uh, applicable to domestic food supply, obviously, also. Um, but let's start. Can you you do a really great job out, outlining capitalist values? Because I think that this is lost on a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people really know what like you know, true kind of capitalist, or I love that you were like, or neoliberalism, if you want to call it that, <laughs> what they are. Um, so can you lay those out um, as you did in the well, book for can, us? 
Well, and what makes it really easy to see now is what's happening with COVID-19. I mean, here with COVID-19, you have the large meat companies who have the power to go to the president and say, invoke the Defense Production Act and force those low-wage workers to go to work, no matter how risky it is for them and how liable they are to develop um, COVID-19. And, you know, to date, 60,000 farm and meatpacking workers have gotten sick, and there have been several hundred deaths among them because they work under very crowded conditions. They may or may, or may not have health care. They they're forced to work even if they're sick. I mean, the kind of thing that went on there was sort of the worst part of capitalism in action. But the general idea about the way capitalism works is you try to keep the cost of production really low, so you don't pay your workers, um, and you the the thing that matters most is price and money. You maximize profits and minimize costs, and the other thing you do is you externalize the negative costs of whatever you're doing. So in the case of food companies, um, you're not responsible if people get sick. Um, if they become obese, if they develop type 2 diabetes, that's not your responsibility. You're not responsible if agriculture is putting all kinds of nutrients into the water supply. So the water supply is no longer drinkable and fish can't swim in it anymore. Those are, those are, or, or you're not responsible for the, the plant, for plastic waste that yeah. pollutes the environment and messes up the oceans. Um, so that's what capitalism is about. And it's money over everything else. Human values are irrelevant. And if you talk about human values, you're considered silly. Um, yeah. And the other thing that you do is you use your political power to capture government so the government doesn't regulate you. Um, and that, I, you and know, we see this. Oh, yeah, well, through lobbying, absolutely, and I, you are like the expert, I think, on 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 tracking a lot of that, a lot of, <laughs> and certainly the, the what happens when um, you know lobbyists get to work and and companies fund um, studies that are show exactly what they want them to show. But when we when we talk about capitalism, it, it seems like to me, I, I it, like the system that we have right now is like a a, a free leg up for for the rich <laughs> and for corporations, right? In the form of like tax breaks for marketing dollars and things like that, and then it's like a free market for everybody else. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know how we go about changing that, though. Really, like, are there other examples of societies that you look to that are you know doing this in a well more ethical well, way? There are societies in Europe that have social values as part of the way they function. So they have health care for people. Um, they, education is free. I mean, you look at, at some of the European societies, people pay higher taxes in those mm -hmm. countries, but not much higher, really not yeah. much higher. And the rich pay higher taxes than the poor do. The tax breaks don't go to the rich. They go to people who don't have as much money. And, yeah. and what you have there 
in return for your taxes is free education, free health care, um, and a lot of maternal child benefits that we can't even, child care benefits, um, benefits that we can't even imagine here. You know, yeah. when, when I'm teaching and I'm talking to classes about how other societies run, they can't even imagine what a society like that would be where college is free. Yeah. You know, where yeah. your entire education is free and your entire education is an excellent education where children get fed in school without even questioning it about it. Where when your kid goes to school, of course your kid is going to get fed. Um, And of course your kid is going to go to school, and a good one at that. And where the amount of money that schools have is not tied to the income level of the community in which the school is located. I mean, these are political choices. We could have a very different society if we had different political choices. It's hard to imagine that right now, but we have an election. We, we, no. It's really hard to imagine that right now. I'm like, I'm like, going to vote. Yes. I'm like, all I hear you saying is I need to move to Europe. Because that is where I'm at right now. No, um, we're definitely, we're going to get to, to politics and, um, you know, and what we can, what we need to be doing um, in, in just a minute. But um, so basically, you know, this, this whole, the other thing that you talk about in thinking about like a, kind of the, these free market values and continuing with the theme of overproduction and how detrimental that is. Another place that shows up is food waste. And, you know, I'm very passionate about food waste. I've, you know, worked in the field. I, I really, you know, to me, it really has been like most of the food waste I thought occurred at the household level, but you kind of present another view and you're like, it's not really a matter of, you know, kind of personal action as much as it is of, another example of overproduction. Yeah, I'm very much in favor of people doing what they can to reduce food waste. That's fine. Uh, Hmm. The studies that have been done on food waste say that roughly 20% of wasted food occurs at the household level. So we could do a lot about that 20%. 10% um, is at the retail level. That was the big surprise to me. I thought there was much more wastage at the retail level. But in fact, the packaged goods, there are outlets for the packaged goods, and there are even outlets for a lot of um, the fresh produce that has to be thrown away if it's not in good shape. But 70% of food waste occurs at the production level. And that's a very different story um, and much, much harder to deal with. And, uh, you know, I tell the story about visiting a farm in upstate New York where um, he had just had his fields cleared and, you know, everything had been taken away. And the fields were just covered with perfectly good corn, squash, and other kinds of vegetables that he was growing. He said, take as much as you want. I can't do anything with it. I'm just going to plow it under. And I said, what about food banks? I mean, there was really a lot of food there. What, What about food banks? And he said, well, I've contacted every food bank within 50 miles, and none of them have the logistical logistical capacity to deal with this. They don't have people to come and pick it up. They don't have trucks and they don't have time. Um, And we saw that during COVID, right? This was like you said before, this was a, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happened when the meatpacking plants couldn't stay open for that brief period of time before the Defense Production Act got put in. Um, the animals piled up. There was no place for them to go, so they had to be culled, which is a polite word for killing them, which is and then throwing them in landfill because there's nothing to do with them. It was really, really horrible. Uh, milk being thrown oh, yeah. out, or veg- vegetables being plowed under, because we have two completely different food chains in the United States, one for retail stores, groceries, and so forth, and the other for food service. Um, And the food service one ended because there wasn't any food service. Restaurants closed, schools closed, institutions closed, all of the place where food service food went closed. And there was nothing, and there was no way for it to be delivered to people who needed it. And then don't get me started on the whole business about why are we giving food packages to people who are poor? Why aren't we giving them money so they can buy their own food? That's another Mm -hmm. issue. So many issues. (laughs) Yeah, there are lots of issues. Yeah, that's what makes it that's what makes it so so interesting. We need higher food costs, but we also want food to be affordable. So there seems to be like a really like a, a disconnect, right? Like what we're really talking a bit about is we need to fix social inequities. What does this really mean like in practice? How do we kind of bridge that gap between we need like food to be more affordable, but better quality, but people still can't afford it? I don't well, know if I right did a really now, good job asking that question. Yeah, right now, agricultural subsidies go to corn and soybeans, which are, go to feed animals or fuel for cars. Don't get me started on the whole ethanol thing. Yeah, uh, 40% of American corn is ground up and uh, converted to ethanol and used as fuel in automobiles. I mean, I'm, I just can't even get my head around that one. Um, we need, you know, if you start thinking about what you do, what you want is a food system that promotes the health of people and promotes the health of the environment. You want food to be grown sustainably. You want everybody involved in the food system to be paid a wage that will allow them to live a a decent life. Um, You want the food system aimed at promoting health, not promoting the fatness of animals or the amount of ethanol in cars. Um, Those are political choices that societies make. And so the question is, how do you change those political choices in an environment, in a political environment in which government is captured by corporations? Um, And so the answer to that is you change the government. And in order Mm -hmm. to change the government, you have to change civil society. Um, We have, I mean, the reports that came out last year talked about how there were three barriers to creating a food system that would promote human and environmental health. And those barriers were a food industry that was opposed to the kinds of changes that are needed and used the political system to prevent those changes, a weak government that is captured by corporations, food corporations among them, and a weak civil society 
that isn't taking to the streets to demand these kinds of things because it's too distracted with all this other stuff that's going on. So if we had, so I'm all for strengthening civil society. I think that would be really helpful. We've seen little bits of and pieces of it, and the Black Lives Matter movement is an example of a strengthening of civil society. We need a much stronger civil society uh, to take action around food issues. What it will take to do that, I don't know, but I say there are two things that everybody has to do. Vote mm-hmm. with your fork, vote with your vote. Mm-hmm. Um, the voting yeah. with your fork means that food choices that you make Uh, need to reflect your values, whatever they are. And then you have to get involved in politics. And um, six weeks from now, we have an election. Everybody's got to vote. This is not a year to sit out the vote. You don't don't like any of the candidates? Hold your nose and and vote for the one that is least worst. (laughs) Yeah, there's the idea that there's still a choice. That's a whole other... That's a whole other, um, I mean, there is no choice, but yet there, there are people are still, I still, somebody said to me the other day, like, well, I really just don't like either one of them. And I'm like, I need to leave before I get violent. No, the answer to that is hold your nose. Yeah. Hold yeah. Your nose. This is a lesser evil year. Yeah. You know, I mean, vote, yes, you of know, course. You don't like the choices. This is, a, this is still a real choice. Right. Um, right. Well, and, and you have to vote. So one of the things that um, I, um, so after the 2016 election, once I finally got out of bed, like, you know, <laughs> shortly after, cause it was so depressing. Um, I actually interviewed Mark Bittman and I had asked him this question that I'm excited to ask you now. Um, so we're, cause we're in like a, although I really actually, this things are so much worse than even I imagined they were going to be. And I'm a pessimist. So that's changed. But um, I said, is this the right time to be really focusing and pushing on food issues? Like, obviously this is my passion. I think that food is connected to everything and you know, you don't, you don't have to sell me, but like, is this the right time to be pushing the general public? Like, the world is on fire, literally and figuratively. Um, and we are—we will not have a democracy <laughs> if, if uh, Trump wins re-election, right? And it is—it's a mess. So, how can you justify like prioritizing healthy food at a time like this? If not now, when? If not you, who? Um, I, you know, I think these are real questions. The, the thing about food that makes it worth supporting is that everybody eats. You mm-hmm. have the opportunity to change the food system to promote the health of vast numbers of people. Everybody eats. Nobody survives without eating. Um, nutrition problems due to not enough food or too much of the wrong kinds of food affect literally billions of people. Climate change and the effect of agriculture on the food system affects everybody in the world. Mm-hmm. This is a place that, and people can understand it. You try and explain politics to people and they, their eyes glaze over, but everybody gets food politics right away. Just mm-hmm. right away. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I had a doctor's appointment and I was explaining that I write, write books about food politics. And he said, oh, I never thought politics had anything to do with food. Oh, right. he said, you must mean what's happening in meatpacking plants. Ah, yeah. You're like, what's, I do. <laughs> exactly. You must mean what's going on in schools. He had it. He never right. thought about it before, and yet he had it just like that. You know, right. the idea that schools are places where kids not only learn but get fed, and all of a sudden we're talking about universal school meals. Universal school meals are what they have in Europe. All kids mm-hmm. who go to school get fed in school. They don't have to go through these ridiculous Uh, problems of proving that they don't have enough money to buy lunches and having to wait on special lines and be stigmatized and go through any of that. Let's have universal school meals in, uh, in schools where all of the kids get fed and no questions are asked. And we have that until December 31st. We have that. So it can be done. It can be done. It's being done. Let's just keep it going. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back, where today I am speaking with uh, Marian Nessel about her new book, Let's Ask Marian, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. One of the things I really liked is, so you talked about Citizens United in a couple places in the book. And I think kind of like an maybe an aha moment for people might be that there are so many positive effects that trickle down, even though I don't like that term, but (laughs) when economics um, comes after it, but no, but like there, that um, will have a positive effect on the food system and environment. Like there are certain kind of bigger pieces of legislation or regulations that will have all of these other positive effects, including on our food system. Well, I would say Citizen United is a good place to start. Let's repeal it. Um, this is the law. This is the law that enables corporations to put as much money into politics as they want. 
And as long as corporations are funding election campaigns, we will never have a government that is free of corporate influence. Election campaigns should be funded by the public. Everybody should be on a level playing field. It should be possible for poor people who want to make change in the world to run for office and not owe some enormous corporation that paid for their election campaign. It's, it's you know, from an ethical standpoint, there's, there are, the conflicts of interest are absolutely gross. Um, so that means changing that. That means, unfortunately, a different Supreme Court, or yeah. it means and an, it means a civil society that is so outraged about what's going on um, that they make their wishes known. And that's why I say I'm for strengthening civil society. I think it's the most yeah. important thing we do right now. Um, one of the and civil. You mentioned the Supreme Court, and of course, we lost a. A titan in the fight for um, equality, women's equality, certainly last week. Um, and one of the things I, I love that you touched on in the book is that, you know, one of like a lot of the some of the food systems challenges that we're facing now and certainly to ensure that we have a sustainable food future there is the requirement to empower and educate women. I, I think that this is actually like pretty much every issue that, we, that we're facing in the world can be solved to some degree by educating and empowering women. I don't care, like everywhere. But um, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Because I think it's one of these, I don't think the connection is made for a lot of, it doesn't seem so obvious for people at first. You know, one, one of the... Um development ideas in developing countries where there's not much money and there are lots of poor people and there's a lot of child illness and premature death um, and food insecurity, not having enough food. Uh, the obvious way to deal with people who don't have food is to give it to them. But there are much better ways of doing, there are much better ways of getting food to people. And one is to make sure that people have enough money um, in, to buy the food that they need. And the other is to make sure they're educated enough to know what kind of food to buy, to know how to give it to their children and to ask the kinds of questions that they need answers to in order to provide for their families. And it has been shown over and over and over again that empowering women, giving money to women, um, teaching women, making sure that women are educated has an enormous effect on producing okay. healthier children. Um, and that's been shown over and over and over again. Um, so education is really important. It's not enough. You need other kinds of policies to support it, um, mm -hmm. but it's certainly a start. And um, critical thinking, please. Yes. Um, and you talk about population control also, which is a sort of a lightning rod, I think, for, for a lot of people. But again, I think um, this is another kind of issue uh, that falls within, you know, empowering women to be able to um, make their, have their own like reproductive uh, freedoms. <laughs> All of this is very um, top of mind to me right now, Marianne, with our, with what's happened in the past week. Yeah. I mean, I mean what this points out is how food connects to everything. 
you know, the the big question about food production is how are we going to feed the six or eight billion, the eight billion people that are going to be in the world in uh, in twenty fifty? And nobody talks about population um, dealing with you know, and we know that what keeps population levels under control and uh, gives us zero population growth is education, enough money, a, a life with a future attached to it so that people are not dependent on their children for their old age or for their livelihood while they're, you know, while they're e- even young. So you don't have to put kids to work in order to support the family. You look at, I mean, we'll go back to Europe. You look at what's happening in Europe where there's essentially below zero population growth and the population is declining. And that's because people have what they need. They don't need to have 10 children uh-huh. um, and vast numbers of children. And so that means we need to bring or help bring people in the world who do not have the kind of economic status that we have, we have to give them or make or teach them or empower them to have the, an economic status that will support them in a way that's satisfying so that children don't become their most important asset. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, we, we will. Can I say one more thing about that? You can't oh. talk about that. Because it yes. gets into moral, ethical, religious discussions. I think we need much more discussion about that. It would solve yeah. a lot of problems if we didn't have huge population growth. Yeah, I am 100% on that page. <laughs> That's why yeah, I love I'm doing this even, show and talking yeah, to you. I mean, and I mean it for everybody. I don't, you know, what when you get into discussing population growth, it's us and them. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everybody. Why do you think that? Because it's like so based in in religion, or it ha- like I I don't understand why that's. Maybe I'm being naive, but I don't really understand why it's so taboo. Oh, I think it's us and them. Um, I oh, think population. Yeah. I, I think population restriction is important for everybody else, but not for me. Yeah, everybody feels that way. It's for them. It's for people who are not like me. Uh, there are too many of them. Like uh, so, um, it's, a- it, it's us and them, and it's it's uh, where I just learned a new word: otherizing. It otherizes, oh. um, and that we, when you put otherization on top of religion, moral ideas, patriarchy, all of these other kinds of things, uh, you get into arguments that are very fraught. Uh, so the best thing you can do is improve people's economic status, and it happens without anybody doing anything about it. Hmm. So one of the things I wanted to make sure that we get to you—you you have a, a wonderful chapter outlining, you know, technology's role um, in improving our food system. What I would love to know, Marion, is what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur, you know, who is kind of new to the food space but maybe has like a tech background? Well, I think technology does have a role in the food system, um, but it isn't to it isn't soil it green. Um, it's not producing food things that are you know food like objects that really don't have anything to do with food. I would say the first thing to do is how about learning something about food, understand its role in culture, its role in society, and its role in economics. 
think about what it is that people want to eat, why they want to eat the way they do, what the influences are on it, and then see what the problems are and whether you can think of a technological solution to it. Um, right now, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm technologically challenged and I'm finding the whole technological things that I'm required to do these days very annoying, particularly don't, since they don't work half the time. Um, but I am impressed by some of the indoor farming that is going on. And I think that addresses uh, the lack of adequate land on which to grow food. And there are groups that are doing a very good job of it. Um, and when they get their energy balance problem solved, it, it will really be worth doing. Uh, right now, they're using a lot of energy that the sun ordinarily would supply. Um, so I think the problems are complicated. I don't think that they're necessarily all amenable to technological solutions. I'd like to see technology applied instantly to make it easier for people to vote um, mm. and to vote um, and to vote in a way that will be accountable and um, also done honestly. That would be really nice. I wish we had a system set up right now so that all yeah. we had to do was push a button and our vote would be counted. <laughs> um, so I'd rather see them do that than worry about food. But I think there will be a place for technology. I'm not sure what it will be. Um, okay, two two more quick questions. Uh, the first is, has your stance um, changed on anything in particular since you've, throughout your career that maybe came up when you were writing this book? Anything that you have kind of reversed course on? Oh, it's interesting. One of the first ideas for this book was that I put together articles that I'd written over the last 40 or 45 years to, to demonstrate the arc and the trajectory of my thinking about nutrition. But in fact, I wrote articles 45 years ago that look very much like the things I'm saying now. Um, you know, I, I think that the, uh, you know, if anything has changed, it's my willingness to talk about capitalism openly uh, when certainly five years ago I would never I called it the C word yeah. I would never say it publicly uh, but one of the big changes that's taken place over the last few years is that everyone is beginning to see the flaws in capitalism in capitalistic systems and is and able to see um, how these systems are so unfair to people who don't have money um, or who don't have the kind of uh, economic and social capital that allows them to prosper in the current system. That's a big change, and I think it's a good one. And I'll just say one more thing about mm -hmm. the COVID pandemic is that if it, if it has done anything good at all, it, is, it has been to make a lot of these issues very clear, even to people who didn't know about them before. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there for today. I want to thank um, our sponsors for your generous support. Our show engineer is Jeet Paul, and uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.